Quest of Bliss, a podcast about finding light in the darkness. This episode was produced by Cappy Productions. Just going to take a moment to interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to introduce you a show called Translating Love. I played their uh, promo last week on the show, but in case you missed it, here it is again. Hey, everybody. This is Danny. And Boyfi. From the podcast Translating, Translating Love. Love. And yes, we know what you're thinking. Another relationship podcast. However, since I am from the U.S., And I'm from Austria. We think that there is a unique twist on the genre. With relatable topics and interesting guests, we're trying to provide some helpful insights, give helpful tips, and also make you laugh. Our topics for translating love include mental health, trauma, anxiety, long-distance relationships, being married, sex, and many other subjects concerning all types of relationships, not only romantic ones. And our goal is not to only strengthen our bond and spend more quality time together making translating love, but also to try to be more mindful, learn new things about these topics and ourselves, and become more well-rounded human beings. Therefore, we also talk about subjects that are important to talk about and relatable in this day and age. You can listen to Translating Love on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. I got to tell you, I love the concept of the show, and I think that they are just fantastic people. So check it out and back to the show. Hello and welcome back to The Conquest of Bliss. I am here with the wonderful Rick and he is the author of a book called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. And I'm just so excited to talk to you today. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing great, Kara. Thank you so much for inviting me to the program. I appreciate it very much. I have been so excited for this episode for for so long because as you know, it's something that's super close to my heart. And so I was wondering, before we get too far into it, can you tell me a little bit about how you got into it, how you were introduced to it, and what really started this whole process for you? I started out actually working in the mental health field when I was uh, working as a, uh, as a crisis counselor at a regional uh, mental health center. I worked in their crisis unit, and we would accept people from the emergency room into the crisis center where we would uh, help help them for a period of time. Okay. And I noticed that a number of them had not only a mental health issue, but a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois, received a, a master's degree in addictions counseling. Oh, wow. And then I accepted a position with Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is a large uh, psychiatric hospital that treats both adults and adolescents. I was hired as an addictions counselor. Okay. So I, I worked at Menninger for uh, around 11 years where I treated both adolescents and adults who had uh, mental health and substance abuse issue. I was an addictions counselor, so I worked with the, uh, with the adults and the adolescents who were diagnosed with a substance use disorder. Okay, okay. In the process of doing that, I, 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 I met with a large number of families and, and, and I would sit down with them and, and go through their child's history of using substances, what they were using, how often they were using, when they began. And, and many times these parents would look across at me after I gave them the diagnosis and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if mm -hmm. they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say, well, I sort of thought something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. Mm -hmm. So 
after I left Menninger, I decided to put together this handbook, really, this resource for parents that would give them in a very concise, user-friendly format the basic information that every parent uh, can benefit from having. So it covers a number of subjects. It, it gives a review of the street drugs out there that kids are using. It, it talks about how these drugs work in the adolescent brain. It gives warning signs for substances. It, it focuses a chapter on the type of assessments that you want to get done if you suspect your child is using a substance. And then it has information on resources that are available, different types of treatment options. And it has a chapter on what we call process disorders, which are behavioral mm -hmm. disorders like self-injury and eating disorders, because mm -hmm. they sometimes can accompany a child using a <laughs> substance. So I packed all of this into about 100 pages uh, that a parent can read very quickly and hopefully walk away thinking, okay, I, I've got this. I understand this a little better. I feel better prepared now. That's the goal. And as we talked about before, I'm actually really excited to read the book. So part of my process, like we talked about, is I kind of try to go in with no knowledge so that I can learn from the person. And I am so excited <laughs> to read this book because, because so a little bit about my history is, so I self-harmed. Um, I was actually, I was hospitalized for suicide attempt at 17 and was addicted to crack and cocaine when I was 16, 17 years old and got clean when I was 18. And knowing, <laughs> knowing, like being in that field or that world, I guess is really more what, more what I mean. Um, I know that I am extremely lucky. I am extremely lucky to have gotten clean before my adolescence was over and to sort of get a fresh start on life. And so I really feel for my peers and the the young people today because of that. So I think it's really interesting that you touch on how self-harm and those concurrent issues um, are, are so frequently there because I think that it often gets missed in the bigger conversation. I think it does, unfortunately, and, and and what also gets missed in the conversation is that many times a a teenager who is using a substance is is using it to medicate an underlying psychological issue. It might be anxiety or depression or some type mm -hmm. of trauma, um, and and often that gets undiagnosed. Um, you know, they they notice the substance uh, abuse because that's fairly obvious, mm -hmm. but. Uh, Unfortunately, in so many cases, the underlying issue that is driving a child to use a substance uh, often gets undiagnosed and therefore, uh, unfortunately, doesn't get treated. Well, and what's interesting to me, too, um, like from my own experience, and that's really what I can speak to, is that sometimes it'll get misdiagnosed because someone's actively using. I know when I was 17 and I was hospitalized, like I was talking about before, I was diagnosed with bipolar 2. Now, since I got, I've gotten clean, um, no psychologist or psychiatrist has even close to diagnosed me with bipolar 2. I've, I've got some other issues, um, PTSD and anxiety for anyone who's curious. Um, but, it, uh, but I find it interesting because it really muddies the waters when you're trying to diagnose, I think. 
It does muddy the water. It makes it, it makes it much more challenging and much more complex because you have to try and filter out the behaviors that you're seeing. Are they drug-induced only? Mm-hmm. Or are there underlying issues that the, that the individual is using the substance to medicate? And, and that can be a very tricky, uh, tricky process to, to, to sort all of that out. But, but it's important that it be sorted out. Mm-hmm. Yes, very, very important because I know that I was put on medication that definitely made my life more difficult because it was treating an illness that I did not have. Right. Um, so one of the things you mentioned is is the self-medication thing. And I think that that's an important piece um, because as adults, sometimes people do that and it, and it makes sense. But the difference with children, of course, is that the prefrontal cortex and other parts of the brain don't finish developing until often they say 25 so do you want to talk a little bit about the difference in drug use, substance use with children versus adults? Yes, that's an excellent, uh, excellent question. And, and in my mind, what I think there are two major differences between adult addiction and adolescent addiction. Okay. And the first difference is exactly what you mentioned, brain development. Our brains uh, develop uh, throughout adolescence until our mid-20s. So an adolescent's brain is in the process of maturing and developing and forming those critical connections that that they will need later in life as an adult. And our, our brain matures from the back to the front. So really the last part of the brain to get uh, fully developed is what's called the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's the part of the brain that is responsible for higher order thinking, rational decision-making, um, and the ability to weigh pros and cons and mm-hmm. hopefully make good decisions. <laughs> so, you know, the, the first difference is the adolescent brain is in the process of, of, of developing and maturing, so it needs to be protected. The adult brain, on the other hand, after around age 24, 25, is fully developed. The second big difference is in the area of consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, adults who are addicted uh, to a substance have oftentimes faced consequences as a result of their substance use. And many times these consequences have been catastrophic. The individual might have lost a job, they might have lost a marriage, they might have been incarcerated. These are catastrophic consequences that often accompany an adult who's addicted to a substance. Adolescents, on the other hand, have faced very few consequences, very few. Their biggest consequence usually is their parents coming down and placing some type of restrictions on them, um, but, but nowhere near the catastrophic consequences consequences that an adult sees who's addicted to a substance. So mm-hmm. consequences and brain development are two of the big differences between adults and adolescents addicted to a substance. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense to me because I know that the consequences when I was young had a lot to do with social consequences as well as uh, school. But of course, your priority is in school when you're a kid. So I guess one of the big questions that's on my mind, and I imagine the mind of the listeners, is how do you, like, how do you know? How do you know? Even look for that. Well, I think that 
What I advise parents to do is pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone. So pay attention to the changes that you see. Don't assume that what you're seeing, the changes that you're seeing, is just normal adolescent acting out. That might very well be the case, mm -hmm. but it also might be an indicator that there's something else going on underneath the surface. So pay attention to the changes that you see. In my book, I have warning signs for alcohol. I have warning signs for marijuana. I have warning signs for a child that's developing an eating disorder. And I have warning signs for a child that is self-harming themselves. But in general, parents should pay attention to the changes that they see in their child. For example, you might have a child uh, who was earning very good grades and now the grades are declining. You may have a child who enjoyed participating in sports, no longer wants to participate in sports. You may have a child that used to be very social and outgoing uh, and talkative, now becomes isolating and very quiet. You may have a child who very openly introduced you to their friends. You knew who their friends were. You knew who may have even known who the parents of their friends were, now becomes very secretive about their friends. These are all changes that parents need to pay attention to. Now, if these changes last a day or two or a few days, okay, it's probably a temporary thing that's mm -hmm. going on. But the longer these changes go on and the more of these changes that you see, the more concerned you need to be as a parent and follow up and get some assessments done so that you have the information to make decisions. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess a question for me, like I, I, uh, I'm at that age now where I don't have children, but I have peers that have children um, that are of the age, you know, that, that may be getting close to to those types of issues. And one of the things that's really hard for me, and maybe you don't have an answer, and if not, that's okay, but I am constantly wrestling with how to address it because of the fact that consequence doesn't really um, have the same impact with, with young people that it does with adults because of that prefrontal cortex piece. And, and I mean, I'm a big advocate for education in general, but what I'm wondering is, is if I am talking to, you know, my friend's daughter who's 13 and I want to help her understand the risks and understand that it's just, she's, she's too young to be exploring it or, or any number of things like that. What is a way, if you have one, that you can approach children in a loving way that doesn't just push them further away? That's an excellent question, and, and, and my advice uh, is to um, work on communi your communication skills. We can all improve the way that we communicate mm -hmm. <laughs> with each other and with children. And what I mean by that, Kara, is that we're very good at, at, at listening to people's words when we talk to them, so mm -hmm. that when we're talking to each other or we're talking to children, we're very good at listening to the words, but we're not so good at listening to the feelings behind the words. And, and what I suggest that it will help is that we all practice listening skills that allow us to, to, to hear not only the person's words, but the feelings behind those words. So that when you're talking to a teenager about this issue of substance abuse, you're not lecturing them, you're not, you're not hearing just their words, you're hearing the feelings behind those words. And the conversation becomes a conversation of, of, of you being uh, interested in, 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 in knowing 
more about what's going on, your curiosity. You're not accusing the child of anything. You're not condemning their behavior, but you're curious as to why they're using a substance. What's going on? Help me understand what's going on. You're more likely to get the child to open up if you listen to their feelings and you approach it with an inquiring type of approach. That is excellent advice, I think, even beyond um, dealing with with children just in general is is people are a lot more open to people who see, seem genuinely interested. So I think that's excellent advice yeah. overall. Um, so, you know, if, if you if you are having a conversation with a teenager and you're able to get them to open up a little bit and they say, yes, I've been using substances, I've been feeling really alone or left out or any number of different things. Like I know for me personally, it was a combination of trauma and the desire to escape and wanting to fit in. And and those two kind of came together really sort of perfectly to create this this situation that I became in. Um, So when they do open up, do you have any advice for how to gently lead them to help? Because I know that we're all contrarian and teenagers are worse for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think all all help begins with an accurate diagnosis. And, and, and an accurate diagnosis begins with a comprehensive assessment. And that's why I put an entire chapter in my book about comprehensive assessments. What assessments as a parent should you be looking for to, to get a complete picture? Um, for example, you will need an addictions assessment. That would come from a person like me, and that's going to give you the information about your child's substance use and, and the diagnosis of substance use disorder, whether it's mild or moderate or severe. You need a psychological or a neuropsychological assessment to give you information about what's going on underneath the surface. Are there any of these emotional issues that your child is struggling with? Does your child have a lot of anxiety or depression or or are they struggling with some type of trauma so that you, you have a better understanding of what might be going on underneath the surface or or if nothing is going on underneath the surface? So all all effective treatment has to begin with a comprehensive assessment that leads to a diagnosis, which leads to a treatment plan and recommendations. And that's the next step for a parent who is concerned that their child is using a substance. Get the assessments done so that you have the information from the professionals, you have a diagnosis, and you have a treatment plan with recommendations. That totally makes sense to me. And and I was very lucky um, in in getting all of that stuff done early. And now I have a question that might be a little awkward, and I'm sorry if it's a little awkward, but I think it's important. And that is, especially in the United States where you are, but also here in Canada, um, there's a lot of accessibility issues for for treatment, um, especially financial in, inaccessibility for, for treatment and, and different things like that. And so if someone is in that position where they are not financially able to swing getting help, is there anything in between they can do while they build up those funds? That's an excellent question because unfortunately, uh, we are not at the point where we have 
really excellent medical services and insurance to, mm-hmm. to, to give adults and many children the type of treatment that they deserve, especially if you have a child who's diagnosed with a serious underlying mental health issue that may actually require residential type treatment, which can mm-hmm. become very expensive. Yes. I think a lot of parents are locked out of, of that access simply because of finances. Some insurance companies do better than others at covering those expenses, but there's no question that it's a tremendous financial responsibility that parents have when they're faced with a child who needs longer-term treatment, and even 30 days treatment, which which um, sadly is not very effective in many cases, can become very expensive. So some of the alternatives that parents can turn to is use the local resources that are available, you know, check in with your school counselor to see if if they are able to do some individual and family work or if there's a social worker assigned to the school district, you know, can, can they provide some services? Local mental health uh, agencies also are very good at offering services. So there are options in avail- that are available to parents who can't afford residential type mm-hmm. treatment. And I would encourage parents to check those resources out within their community because many times they're free. That is super, super helpful and also very encouraging. And it's always my fear when I talk to people, um, especially in the States, where, you know, I mean, we have we have issues with our medical services, but of course it's more accessible. And and I always I always am concerned because I know that like I came from a family that was not well off. Um I would argue that they're still not well off. Uh, <laughs> and and I was very lucky because I was sort of sponsored by the province and and sent over to, I I did a, believe it or not, my treatment program was almost uh, 11 months long, um, which is, which is insane. And, and so, like I said, I, I look at these things and I, my heart bleeds and I'm like, there's gotta be solutions. And that's why I love that people like you will come and talk about those solutions because I think that's really useful. And I wouldn't have thought about going to the school counselor, but of course, hearing it, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, so, so I guess the next thing that I kind of wanted to ask you about is what about like this, this whole thing is very stressful. And I think one of the things that plays off of each other, at least in my family, it did. And I imagine it does in other families is the behaviors that come from addiction can often cause a lot of stress and then trying to get healing can cause a lot of stress. And I think that it's really important that parents find a way to figure out how to deal with their own mental wellness while they're dealing with helping their children get help. Do you know of any tips or resources or anything in that area so that parents aren't getting stressed and and potentially making the problem worse? Well, I think that's that's an excellent observation, Kara, because You know, the child may be the one struggling with the substance abuse or the addiction, but it affects the entire family. Mm -hmm. Addiction doesn't just affect the individual. It affects the entire family system. So everybody is involved with it. Everybody is affected by it. And that means everybody needs support and help. Um, and and I wrote a, a, a parent workbook. It's very brief. It's very short. 
because I recognize that parents go through this struggle as well as their child, and they need they need help too. So this parent workbook has a number of exercises that allow them to uh, talk about the emotions that they're feeling, talk about how their child's addiction has affected them personally. It has some examples of the communication skill that we were just talking about, listening to feelings, not just words. It has a few tips on how to handle anxiety. But my message to parents is, as you're going through this journey with your child, get some help for yourself. Maybe have somebody that you can confide in, somebody that you can trust. Maybe it's another family member. Maybe it's a professional counselor. But, but get some help for yourself because this is going to be a journey that's going to affect you uh, as well as your child. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, get, get, get some help. Uh, have some people that you trust and that you can confide in because this is going to be a journey that's going to affect you as much as it's going to affect your child. Yeah, and even further to that point, I think a thing a lot of people don't realize is that it's also going to affect any other children that you have. Yes. And so it becomes it becomes imperative to find some way of, of coping. And I, I really appreciate that. And I do want to tell the listeners just quickly before we move on that Rick is, is talking a lot about his book. And the cool thing about his book is that it's extremely accessible. You can get a Kindle version for very, very cheap on Amazon, I think less than $5. And so if you're you're fearing the inaccessibility of the resources he's talking about, that's not something to fear. Yes. Um, you can, you, for those who like to read on a Kindle, this, this Kindle version is priced at 99 cents. And if, if you like, if you like, uh, like I do, uh, to read the paperback version, um, I believe that's like less than, less than seven, less than five dollars. So I wanted these to be very affordable for every parent. So, um, so hopefully, um, you know, they'll have access to the information at a very low and affordable price. Yeah. And so I just wanted to make sure that I make note of that as we're talking so that, because I know sometimes people can feel overwhelmed. Oh, I'm not going to be able to read this thing. Well, you are. If, if, if it's something that's important to you, you're going to be able to read it. It's accessible. Um, Rick has done an excellent job of making sure that this is information that reaches everyone, which kind of leads me to my next question. And that is, there's a lot of people who work in addiction. And there's a lot of people who work in the mental health field, and most of them don't show the type of, or maybe not most, a lot of them, I should say, don't show the type of passion for, you know, really dealing with, instead of dealing with symptoms, dealing with the roots of the problem. So do you want, is there, is there a particular moment that moved you? I think working with teenagers um, was not just a challenge, but it was also very gratifying uh, to, to, to sit down with them, to listen to their stories, to listen to, um, you know, why they were using a substance, how it was affecting them, how it was affecting their family, and then to, to see the process that they went through. They, they were on a short-term treatment program at, mm-hmm. at Menninger Clinic. They were with us from three to four weeks where we did a comprehensive assessment 
assessment. We provided some short-term uh, treatment, therapy groups, and things like that, individual counseling. And, and many of these kids came into Menninger uh, very much opposed to being there. They didn't want to be. They didn't want to be there. Classic. They fought. They fought tooth and nail. But the parents held the ground and, and insisted that they come in. So when they walked through the door, they were very oppositional, very defiant. Didn't want to be there. You could tell just by looking at them and their attitude that they hated being there. But then to watch them grow as they went through the three or four week process of the assessment and treatment was really very encouraging. And then many of them were referred to longer term residential uh, treatment programs that went anywhere from three to 12 months and longer. And And I would hear back from them sometimes. And it was really gratifying to see how successful they were, how they had overcome this addiction and the underlying issues and had gone on to 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 really be very happy and 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 that was that was probably the most rewarding aspect of of what I was doing to see them grow and develop and overcome these obstacles was really a joy and a blessing to watch that's really fantastic because i think that sometimes it's understated how how much for lack of, like i don't want to sound cheesy but how much potential is stolen through through this kind of um like through addiction and, and substance abuse. I I know like a lot of kids, like it's not, it goes so much further than just graduating or not graduating. It goes, it goes into social lives and into trauma. Like a lot of, like that's one thing a lot of people I think don't realize is that being actively involved in communities that are, that are abusing substances is a very sure way to end up with very specific types of trauma Um, and it sucks. (laughs) It sucks. And, and I'm just so excited to hear that there's some, I don't know, uh, hope, hope is, I guess the right word. And so I wonder, um, you know, in this, in this process, like, have you, have you refined the process as you've gone along or did you find that this works right away or, can you talk a little bit about well, that? Well, what, what I found works with adolescents is to listen to them, to, to, to sit down and, 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 and try to understand from their perspective why they're using a substance. And that often involves them talking about the underlying issues. For example, most of the kids that I worked with, most of the teenagers uh, were smoking a lot of marijuana multiple times a day. And when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking a drug like marijuana, the number one answer that came back was, it helps me with my anxiety. Okay, now we have a reason. Now we can work with that. The other thing that I noticed made a difference with with teenagers was it didn't do me any good to tell them the drug was illegal or that they, they, they might not get good grades or they may drop out of school or they may not graduate or they may not get to college or they may not get a job. They didn't care about any of that because they didn't believe it. But what did make a difference was when I started, started to talk to them about the neuroscience of addiction. These were very bright young men and women, mm-hmm. and they were interested in the education. They were interested in how their brain worked, and they were interested in how drugs affected their brain. So 
when I began to talk to them about the neuroscience, the need to, to protect their brain, how these drugs worked in their brain, that captured their attention more than anything else. And I think that's one of the shortcomings that we have in our school system. I think we could make a lot of progress if we would start at a very early age in elementary school and then reinforce it every single year all the way through high school, the neuroscience of addiction, teach the children how these drugs work in the brain, teach them how the brain works and the importance of protecting these brains. You can't do this one time as a senior in high school. You need to start in the elementary grades and then reinforce it every single year. Because I think the neuroscience approach, the education approach may have an impact on these kids. It certainly did with the ones that I worked with. It's so interesting that you say that, Rick. It's so interesting. I was just having it because I, I do talk about this topic a lot. Um, and I was just having a conversation literally less than an hour ago or maybe an hour ago because it's later than I thought it was, but still recently. And I said almost exactly that is that I think that if kids were to be taught, um, like educated on how how the neuroscience works, how the the drugs actually affect their brain and the fact that there's only a certain window that their brain is developing in and i mean at at the rate that it is of course it continues to develop throughout life but um that it it that we need to really protect it i think i was just saying that i think that if that had been really demonstrated and explained to me well when i was young I would have considered it a lot more, not because of consequences, because of course, as we talked about, kids and consequences is a bit of a complicated issue because the prefrontal cortex, but because of, of, of understanding. I think that understanding that it's not about, about blocking their autonomy. It's about trying to give them all the tools that they can have so that they can be successful. And when it's kind of framed that way, where it's like, hey, we want you to be autonomous, but we want you to continue to have the capacity, capacity to be autonomous, then I think the kids are more responsive to that. And I know that I probably would have been as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a good observation because when, when you approach it from that perspective, you're much more likely to uh, to capture their attention and 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 open up the communication channel uh, where they feel like you know they're not being judged. We know that that's a big fear among t adolescents that their parents will judge them, uh, and you're much more likely to get some positive uh, positive effects from that approach. Yeah, not to mention, like, um, at least for me and, and most of the teenagers that I've come into uh, contact with is the the question of autonomy versus control. A lot of a lot of children really or not children, I should say, I mean, mostly teens, children seem to be more OK with it, like young children. But teenagers are really coming into their autonomy in a big way and fear that sense, fear being controlled more so than adults and more so than young children from, from what I've observed. And I think I, that that plays into it a lot. I think, I think that's true. When we ask kids, uh, teenagers, what is it that keeps you from talking to your parents about things that, that are bothering you or, or, or even the drugs that you might be using, the number one answer that comes back is the fear of being judged. They don't want to be judged. They don't want to be judged by anybody, but they particularly don't want to be judged by their family members and their parents. So that, that weighs very heavily on their mind. 
Um, they also don't want to be controlled, you know, and, and as they get older, they seek more and more independence. And, and as a parent, it's a, it's a tricky situation to try and, and, and navigate that road of, okay, how much independence should this child, child be getting? How much freedom should they be getting? It's a tricky, tricky road that every parent has to negotiate and figure out. Um, but, but the bottom line is, you know, begin to develop that sense of trust, that communication mm -hmm. style that I talked about earlier, that you can begin at a very early age, but, but regardless of the age of your child, you can, you can learn those communication skills so that when you're talking to your child, they really feel that you not only hear their words, you hear their feelings and you understand where they're coming from. Well, and it's interesting because I was just about to ask you about that is, you know, once once things have been addressed and the and the sort of relationship between parent and child has started to heal because of, you know, um, more effective communication where you're communicating not just to respond, but communicating to understand and and all of that stuff. How would you recommend that a parent go about figuring out how to trust their child again without without giving them so much that it is is risky do you, do you understand what i mean yeah I, I think that really depends on where are they in their in their treatment and recovery cycle you know early on as a parent you're probably going to be reluctant to give that child too much of a leeway mm -hmm. because you're not sure you know are they serious about their treatment are they making progress what's going on here but as they move through the treatment process and 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 after treatment um, and, and you see for yourselves the progress that they have made then you can begin to assess okay um, you know I, this this child has earned you know the the uh, the ability to have these privileges but it very much depends on how hard the child has worked and the progress that's been made because you want to reward that progress uh, you want to recognize the effort that they put into treatment and the effort that they put into recovery and and you want to acknowledge that so that so that it becomes a very positive event yeah it's it's such a it's such a balance for sure like and and i agree i agree that positive um reinforcement is super important i remember one of the things that i really struggled with was was feeling that that it didn't matter what i did i wasn't going to be trusted yeah. and and i and then i remember that feeling was very discouraging so that's like, I guess kind of the reason that I asked that question is, is how do you find that balance? Because I understand, especially as an adult now, understand why that fear is there. And, and I guess, so my next question sort of plays into, we talked a little bit about it earlier, you know, when we were talking about diagnoses, but substance abuse in adults and children, um, but especially in, in adolescence can really change the behavior which changes the opinion of people's, like the perception of their character to a lot of people. And do you have any advice for sort of loving the child for the child and remembering that they are suffering and that their brain chemicals are being changed by these substances and all of that stuff? Do you have any advice for seeing past the addiction when, when things are really, really hard? Because I know addiction brings a lot of damage sometimes. It does, and 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 that's the challenge. That that's exactly the challenge that 
that every parent has, looking beyond the addiction. Um, and that gets back again to the fundamental issue of getting that comprehensive assessment done so that you're not just looking at your child's substance abuse, you're looking at what issues might be behind that substance abuse. And, and, and as a parent, I think when you find out that your child has an underlying psychological issue, if, if the child does, that changes the perspective of the parent uh, away from just looking at, at the child as using a substance because they're defiant or because they like to use drugs to understanding that in many cases, this child is using that substance to medicate an underlying issue. So the focus from the parent shifts away from the drug abuse to the underlying issue. Mm. And when that happens, generally you can find the parent shifting and having more compassion and more understanding about the struggle that their child is going through. Because that's really what it comes down to. This child is struggling because of some type of underlying issue you. Might be depression, might be trauma, might be anxiety, might be suicidal thoughts, might be self-injury, but this child is suffering. And, and when the parent's perspective changes uh, so that they're able to see that this child is going through this struggle, then I think the parent's attitude and their perspective changes significantly. That makes sense. Um, and, and I think that that's been my experience as well, is once you recognize an illness, it becomes a lot more easy to understand that it's not someone's character. It is a behavior that's a result of things that that aren't who they are. And I wish that we could make that shift when it came to adults, because <laughs> unfortunately, in our society, we still look at drug addiction different than any other disease, different than any other medical disease. Um, and, and, and that causes um, societies to want to take drug addicts and lock them up, as opposed to giving them treatment. That's that stigma. There's a, still a stigma with mental health, but the stigma for addiction is much more serious and much more severe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's treated as though it is a uh, an affront on on good good behavior yeah. as opposed to something that someone is struggling with. Um, yes. I have one more question before before we move on to um, hearing more about your book and the fun game that we play. And that question is, what about when parents are at their wits end? So I know that like, like what if someone is later in that journey, they're not just starting to recognize the signs, but it's been going on for a long time and they're at their wits end and they, because I mean, parents, as, as much as it would be lovely if we all had perfect mental health, parents struggle too. And so I know that I've seen all sorts of different responses when parents are at that point. I know my parents um, sent me away at one point when I was young to a place and, and it was, you know, kind of dangerous. And I know that other parents will just give up and let their kids go into foster care or different things. And, and I just wonder, do you have any advice for parents that just have run out of steam? What can they do then? I think the message in, in, that I have and that I try to portray in my book is that there's always hope that with the proper 
assessments, with the proper diagnosis, with the proper treatment plan, and with the proper treatment that their child and their family can recover, that they can go on and put this, uh, this, this entire episode uh, behind them. There is hope. We know treatment works. Mm-hmm. We know that treatment is successful. And even for kids that are oppositional and, and enter treatment with an oppositional attitude, treatment works for them as well. You know, and, and sometimes that treatment has to be mandated, mandated by the parents. And, and if there's one thing we've learned, we've learned that mandated treatment works. You don't have to go into a treatment program happy and smiling and willing to jump into it. Many people go into a treatment program in opposition. It's like the the children that I saw come into Menninger Clinic. They were very much opposed to it. They were angry about it. They fought it tooth and nail, but they went through the process and the process worked. It took a little bit of time, but the process works. So my message to parents is don't give up. There is hope. Your child and your family can recover and treatment works, but that treatment has to be based upon a comprehensive assessment and and a treatment plan. That's very, very helpful. And I appreciate you taking the time to to lay that out because, like I said, it's something that I've seen so much and it worries me. So before we move on to our game, can you just tell a little bit about um, the name of your book again and where people can find it and get more of this very useful information that they can have handy? The title of the book is The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. It's available on Amazon. It's also available through the book's website. The book's website is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. And if people people go to that website, helptheaddictedchild.com, they can read endorsements, they can read book reviews, uh, they can read a sample chapter, um, they can learn about the parent workbook, and there's a link that will take them directly to the Amazon page where they can order either the Kindle version or the paperback version or the parent workbook. So um, one one way to, to get to all of this is to go to helptheaddictedchild.com. That's helptheaddictedchild.com. Thank you so much, Rick, for, for, uh, for being very clear about that. So are you ready to guess some 60 slang? Sure. Let's see what we have. All right. All right. So what does it mean when someone says out of sight? That means it's really cool. Yeah. Fantastic. (laughs) All right. All right. What is a fox? Oh, a fox is a very attractive girl. (laughs) Yep. Okay. What about copacetic? Oh, that's just like super. (laughs) It's all cool, man. (laughs) It's all cool. That's right. (laughs) Uh, Primo. Primo is like, what, first class? It is first class. That's exactly the definition that, that it was given. <laughs> All right. See, All I'm right, from we're... the 60s, so <laughs> I know. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't realize. I usually make people guess places they haven't been, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, what does it mean to say dig? Dig? Like, I really dig that? I mean, no, really no. Dig. More like, you dig? Oh, you dig. Do you understand? You get yeah. it? <laughs> It's like you're reading the same list. You're using the exact phrasing they are. It's amazing. Uh, All right. Hacked. Hacked. Uh, Well, from a technology point of view, we all know what hacked means, right? Hacked (laughs) got into my computer. You hacked into something. 
Well, this... That's not a 60s term, though. It, this says it means angry or disgusted. Uh, that's a new one. I didn't realize that one. Okay, so one more, and that is, what are Jesus boots? Jesus boots. Gosh. I don't know. That one's got me, too. Sandals. 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 Ah, Okay, that makes sense. Sure. You did an excellent job. Thank you so much, Rick. Is there anything you wanted to add before I say goodbye to the audience? Yes, I just want to thank you, Kara, for not only uh, allowing me to come on the program, but for participating and contributing your own perspective to this issue, because I think your experiences and, and, and what you contributed made for a very productive session that I hope is helpful to everybody that listens. So thank you for not only having me here, but for contributing to the discussion. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. And I think that it's so, so important that people hear about this and have some resources. I know my parents would have killed for a book like this when I was 14, 15, 16, 17. <laughs> so, uh, so I just appreciate your time so much and uh, chatting with you. Thank you, Kara. All right. And to my audience, I love you. Bye.